Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. In recent days, both Israel and Hamas, the terrorist group that runs the Gaza Strip, had been taking steps to reduce tensions. When Hamas agreed to stop sending flaming kites over the border into Israel, Israel agreed to allow more fuel for Gaza's power plant and to permit the transfer of $15 million from Qatar to pay the salaries of Hamas civil servants in Gaza. Then on Sunday, an elite undercover Israeli unit operating in Gaza had its cover blown and had to fight its way to safety, losing one of their own, a lieutenant colonel, and killing seven Hamas fighters along the way. Because of the secrecy of the mission, Israel's military censor has not released the name of the Israeli soldier killed. It has been reported, however, that he was an Arab Israeli belonging to the Druze minority. After that pitched battle, Hamas escalated in a major way, launching more than 460 rockets into Israel, the most ever in a single day. Israel responded swiftly with airstrikes. In all, one person, actually a Palestinian living in the Israeli city of Ashkelon, was killed by the Hamas rockets, and seven Palestinians were killed in Gaza. After a brutal Monday, the two sides resumed a fragile ceasefire. Later on in the episode, we'll be joined by Gil Hoffman, chief political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, who will walk us through the significant political fallout of this latest flare-up. But first, we have Avital Leibovich, director of AJC's Jerusalem office and a lieutenant colonel in the IDF reserves. Avital is a former spokesperson for the Israeli army and joins us now with an update on this latest round of fighting. Avital, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sefi. It's great to be with you again. Much of the coverage that I've seen begins the story of this latest round of fighting with a botched undercover Israeli operation in Gaza that preceded the rocket attacks. What do we know about that operation? We know that a special force headed by an officer which was quite senior, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, was uh, approximately uh, three, two or three kilometers inside Gaza in an area called Khan Yunis. And uh, they actually went to an operation that had some intelligence uh, requirements. Um, they were uncovered, unfortunately, in the time of the operation by Hamas militants. And the uh, exchange of fire took place. The uh, senior officer was wounded severely, and then a short time after died, and another officer was wounded. Uh, they retreated. There were some aircraft who uh, evacuated these uh, soldiers and officers back to Israel. Um, it was an unfortunate incident. Of course, the goal was not for them to be uncovered. But in special operations, these things happen from time to time. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, this is something that Israel cannot uh, give up. Uh, special operations such as this one was actually very much needed to strengthen and further Israel's security. 
And then Hamas responded with really an unprecedented and ferocious barrage of rockets. I think it was 460 rockets in a single 24-hour period, which is the most that Hamas has ever launched at Israel. Was Israel caught off guard by that? I don't think Israel was caught off guard, and I'll explain why. Uh, Israel actually, Israel intelligence assessed that Hamas will, uh, will operate. And therefore, uh, it took uh, some steps uh, with, the pub- with the civilian population. For instance, roads were closed, school was canceled, uh, different uh, events that were supposed to take place were canceled. People were ordered to stay near shelters. So all of these uh, directions just are an indication of the fact that Israel did expect a Hamas reaction. Uh, like uh, we've seen uh, in the past, different kind of reactions. You are correct by saying that this was quite an intensive uh, fire. And this uh, intensive fire of over 24 hours was something that we have not seen to this extent in the past, which is an indication of uh, Hamas, which is today more daring under a new leadership, uh, more proactive. And this is, of course, an issue of concern. Avital, I was surprised to learn that the sole victim in Israel of Hamas's rockets was actually a Palestinian man from Hebron, from Hebron, uh, who was living in Ashkelon, a newlywed, living with his wife, who was killed when a Hamas rocket hit his apartment. And then I was also surprised to see the new head of the Jewish agency, Isaac Herzog, announce that his organization would be giving emergency funds to the family. I think this is something that they do for all victims of terror, but I believe this is the first time that that quasi-governmental organization has done it for a Palestinian. How do you think Israelis feel about that decision? I think Israelis are very proud of this decision. I don't think, I'm not surprised. Uh, I think that... uh, you know, the Palestinians come to work every day in Israel. There are 150,000 Palestinians that enter Israel on a daily basis. You can see them all over the country. Uh, this is not something uncommon. I think it's just a plain humanitarian gesture without any politics in it. So this is why I think it's, uh, it's very much welcomed by the Israeli public. Now, the violence between Israel and the Palestinians, this latest round concluded with what is now a a fragile ceasefire that I guess Hamas kind of first announced and then Israel sort of backed into, perhaps unhappily. I think there was a sense, certainly there was a sense among the population in Sterot and other border communities in the south next to Gaza that they felt that more action needed to be taken. And critics in the Israeli government, including Um, The outgoing defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, who actually resigned because of this ceasefire, said that the response to the rocket fire was inadequate and exposes Israel to dangers both in Gaza and on other fronts. Are Lieberman and the other people who are opposed to the ceasefire right? Obviously, no one wants to go to war. But does this, you know, kind of immediate backing down give Hamas an opportunity to claim that they were victorious, that that their rockets work, that they've kind of, you know, forced Israel to back down? Look, I have to say that uh, I've been through quite a few operations in Gaza. I don't recall even a single one in which Hamas didn't claim victory, <laughs> regardless of the results. So the issue is really what's going to be the next round and which policy will the Israeli government take regarding Gaza? Because the IDF, the army, definitely has plenty of targets 
Many of the targets are high-quality targets, which uh, can create some, uh, uh, some significant uh, damage to Hamas uh, in a way that will serve as a deterrence. Look, in 2014, when Israel engaged in an operation of 50 days with Gaza, uncovering 32 tan tunnels, this led to three and a half very quiet years with very few rockets every year. So the deterrence obviously has some kind of an effect. In addition to this, we, might, we must keep in mind that money that goes in is not the solution. They are not interested in money. $15 million just went in into Gaza last Thursday. And despite of the money that went into Gaza last Thursday, the riots still were alive and kicking the following day. So this tells us something else about the situation. Um, and I'm not saying it's an easy, uh, very simple situation, but between the line of not doing, on the line of not doing anything to a full-scale operation, there's many things to do in between on that gray zone. Now, Israel goes to great lengths to control the flow of materials into and out of Gaza um, and actually receives quite a bit of criticism for doing so. But even so, it's been unable to stop these periodic rocket barrages. Why has that been so hard? Well, first of all, everything goes into Gaza except items which are considered dual use. Dual use are items that can be used for production of rockets such as certain uh, pipes, uh, fertilized powders, and, and so on. But, as you recall, Gaza also has a border with Egypt. And on that 17-and-a-half-kilometer-long border, there are between 300 and 400 smuggling tunnels. And in those smuggling tunnels, not only weapons can be smuggled, but also weapon experts that can really teach how to produce a bomb, or how to, uh, how to produce a rocket, and so on. Um, so this is the reason why there are arms in uh, Gaza. In addition to this, there are factories in Gaza who are manufacturing those rockets. So these are not homemade rockets like we remember 15, 16, and 17 years ago. These are regular, normal rockets. Finally, it's just 17 years ago, the range of the rocket that was produced in Gaza was four kilometers and hit a range of 10,000 people. Today, in 2018, we're looking at a range of 120 kilometers, which puts in the range, in that range, three and a half million Israelis. So definitely we're talking about a different kind of situation and a different kind of challenge. We've heard a great deal over the past few years about the success of Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Um, And in fact, I think it's pretty easy to make the case that the existence of that system and its success up till now has been able to prevent war because instead of, you know, hundreds of rockets raining down on Israeli population centers anytime Hamas or others fire them from the Gaza Strip, many of them are neutralized harmlessly in midair by this really incredible technology. Why wasn't Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system more effective this time? Were there just too many rockets? I think it was very effective. Uh, It actually intercepted, it had 150 interceptions. The success rate of the Iron Dome system is around 90%. Uh, I think that is very, very impressive, given the fact that it's the only system like it in the world and that it's only a few years operational. 
Um, the system was effective, but this time the difference was that Hamas used barrages, barrages of rockets, and this, of course, challenged the system. Um, and, and hence, you saw from time to time direct hits uh, in houses or in streets and so on. Um, but, you know, the Iron Dome is just one layer in the protection uh, thesis. I mean, there, there are other layers of protection, for instance, the shelters. Every Israeli house that has been built after 1991 has a shelter, and there are regulations for the civilians. So civilians know how to, to behave and where to go and which shelter to enter. And, uh, and this is the reason why we did not have uh, a big number of fatalities this time, because people stayed in shelters. So the Iron Dome is effective, but it's only just one uh, one item, one uh, perspective of the uh, protection system. Avital, I saw on Twitter that a journalist at London's Daily Telegraph was reporting that the Israeli army had actually spent 45 minutes on the phone with one man in Gaza, convincing him to leave his home so that the Air Force could destroy the building, which obviously must have had some military value in addition to being a residence. This is simply extraordinary and not something I could imagine any other country doing, even the U.S. in our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Are Israelis worried that the army is too focused on avoiding civilian casualties, or are they just glad to know that their army is reducing that kind of collateral damage? Look, the international law has been an integral part of the IDF's activity in the past uh, at least uh, two decades. Um, I can share with you that every target that is uh, picked in Gaza or elsewhere in the region has to have the kosher stamp, the approval of the legal advisor of that battalion or that brigade. If the target is, will not be with accordance to the international law, then it will not be proved for use. And uh, this is something that is, is very much intertwined into the operational activities. Now, calling up people in the house or in a building uh, by the IDF, because the IDF has intelligence information indicating that under the building there is a storage of rockets, or on the roof there is uh, some kind of a radar assisting Hamas forces. This is something that was done in previous operations. Uh, you know, one of the easiest things to do is to immediately take down all the phone lines. Uh, the IDF uh, deliberately chooses not to do that, just to keep the open lines of communication. Uh, and uh, this is one of the reasons. I think the Israeli public doesn't know another way. I think the Israeli public is very proud of the way the IDF is working. I can share with you that every year there is a poll of... Um, uh, who do you trust the most? Who do you put your faith or confidence in? Which political or public figure? Uh, this is the question that the Israeli public is being asked. And the army is always gets one of the top three places. Uh, the other two is the judicial system and the president. So, and this is going on for many, many years. So I think um, there is a great confidence, a vote of confidence of the Israeli public in the operation uh, of the army. Avital, last question. Do you think that this ceasefire will hold for any length of time? First of all, the ceasefire was only declared by one side. 
which is Hamas. Israel officially never approved that there is a ceasefire. Um, in my opinion, this calm, this temporary calm, is, uh, is quite temporary. I don't think it will last for a long time. Obviously, there are other actors here, the UN. Uh, Egypt, of course, is a critical actor here. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think it will last uh, for a long time. Uh, tomorrow, Friday, uh, it will be interesting to see whether the violent protests at the border fence will once again uh, become uh, violent and active. And, you know, the, the, the protesters will try to set the fence on fire and target IDF soldiers and hurl IEDs and so on. We, we shall see that yet tomorrow. But my estimation that it's uh, maybe a few more weeks or very few months uh, until the next round in Gaza uh, will unfortunately uh, arrive. Well, we have to hope that the fragile peace will hold. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sophie. I hope that uh, my next podcast with you will be on a more positive uh, issue. <laughs> Here's hoping. Joining us now for an in-depth update on the significant political angle to this week's violence is Jerusalem Post chief political correspondent Gil Hoffman. Gil, thank you for joining us. Pleasure being with you, Sefi. We just heard earlier in the episode from Avital Leibovich, the director of AJC's Jerusalem office, about the violence that has taken place over the past few days, including an unprecedented missile barrage from Gaza and now this fragile ceasefire. Another thing that is suddenly fragile is Prime Minister Netanyahu's governing coalition. How did this round of fighting jeopardize Israel's government? Well, uh, the people of the South got very upset at Netanyahu for the way he handled the wave of rocket fire. Uh, they had to endure 24 horrible hours of 460 rockets and mortars and guided missiles. And uh, when they saw Netanyahu agree to a ceasefire instead of doing a more significant operation to end the rocket fire permanently, they got very upset. And then when Netanyahu convened the security cabinet and leaked afterward that there was unanimous support for the ceasefire that made his defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, upset. And Lieberman decided to quit the government and accuse Netanyahu of surrendering to terror. And uh, without Avigdor Lieberman's party in Netanyahu's governing coalition, it'll be pretty hard to govern for very long. And that's because, just to go over the technical points of it, there are 120 seats in the Knesset. In order to govern, the prime minister's coalition needs to be more than 60 seats. And now, without Lieberman's party, his coalition is just a sliver above that at 61 seats. So if any other party were to leave, the government would collapse. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, without Lieberman's five seats, Netanyahu's coalition goes down from 66 to a very narrow 61, in which point any member of Knesset could flex his muscles, try to get money for his particular cause or pass some uh, outlandish kind of bill. You can't really govern that way. Now, does former defense minister Lieberman have a point? You know, he wasn't the only senior minister to criticize this ceasefire, including someone who's thought of as much more of a centrist, you know, not a hardline right guy, Yair Lapid of the Ishatid party. Is he making a valid point here or is this all kind of political maneuvering? I guess it could be both. 
It, it can indeed be both. The, indeed, the people of southern Israel have su- suffered enough having to run for your lives every time you hear a siren go off and then spend an extraordinary amount of time in a sealed room and the fact that at any given point it could uh, break out uh, over anything. Uh, you know, this time it broke out because the Hamas wanted to prove their independence after receiving $15 million that was facilitated by Israel. Uh, if being given $15 million is a reason to start a war. And so Lieberman, though, decided to take advantage of this to prove that he's tough, to prove that he's right-wing to his right-wing constituency ahead of an election that was pretty much inevitable anyway. The latest that could be held is November 5th, 2019. And uh, so now the earliest is February 19th, 2019. That's not that big a difference anyway after four years in power. Perhaps the single biggest question now as to whether the government will hold together for you know even a few more months is Naftali Bennett's demand to be appointed defense minister. Naftali Bennett is, of course, the leader of Habayat Hayudi, the Jewish Home Party, which is nationalist, national religious, pro-settlement, pro-annexation of the West Bank. We're recording now, I should say, at 8.45 a.m. Eastern time here in the States. Is Prime Minister Netanyahu likely to grant Bennett's request? And what would a defense minister, Naftali Bennett, be like? So as we're sitting here, we don't know yet what's going to happen. Uh, Naftali Bennett has announced that he's going to be making a a statement to the press at 9.15 in the morning Eastern time. Uh, So maybe we'll know a little bit after that, but I don't think so. I think that we'll really only know Friday morning, uh, Israel time, when he's going to be meeting with Netanyahu. That meeting between Netanyahu and Bennett, between two people who don't like each other very much, uh, who um, could really decide when our next election is going to be. Will Netanyahu be able to swallow his pride and give the defense portfolio to a man who was his chief of staff but then went on his own way um, and he hasn't gotten along with? Or will he decide that he'd rather initiate an election immediately um, and uh, not have a government that would be narrow and and difficult to govern? Uh, So far, two of the other parties inside Netanyahu's coalition have openly said they want elections immediately. Right. And that's the uh, that's Aryeh Derry of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party um, and Moshe Kahlon of the center-right Kulanu party. Do you think that even if Prime Minister Netanyahu were to give the defense ministry to Bennett, that they would still move for early elections? It's all in Netanyahu's hands, Sefi. Netanyahu is in charge. Kahlon has wanted to have elections for a while for his own reasons as finance minister of keeping the economy stable and not allowing what's called populist legislation uh, as happens ahead of an election. Arya Derry has wanted there to be an election since he did well in the local races over the past two weeks. Netanyahu will decide based on what's good for the country, I hope, and uh, what's good for Netanyahu personally. So speaking of Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's always positioned himself as, you know, Mr. Security in Israeli politics. But he also has this interesting kind of parallel reputation, one that would probably surprise many armchair experts in the U.S. and Europe as someone who is actually very cautious and very reticent to go to war. Which is the more accurate picture of Netanyahu? Netanyahu is a figure who's misunderstood around the world, especially in America, where he has an image of being this right-wing hardliner who eats Palestinians for breakfast. It couldn't be further from the truth. He's a lot more pragmatic than people give him credit for. 
Um, he, I think he would make peace with the right kind of circumstances. And uh, I would consider him not so right wing, not left wing, self-centered. <laughs> he does what makes sense for him politically. And when it comes to what's right for the country, obviously the people of Israel trust his judgment because they keep on reelecting him time and time again. Gil, where would elections at this juncture lead? You said it's all in Netanyahu's hands, so presumably he's only going to call elections if he expects the Likud to hold the line or gain seats, probably gain seats because he doesn't want to be in in this kind of paper-thin majority situation again. But actually, the last time that that happened uh, with the last elections, he got quite a scare in the polls going up right to the elections, even though he expected, um, we think, to, uh, to coast to victory. So, you know, do we have any inkling of where elections at this juncture might lead? Look, when you start an election, you never know where it's going to end up. It's always a risk. Anything can happen in an election. There could be an indictment of the prime minister during the election for bribery. Uh, That could result in people deciding that they don't want to have a prime minister facing bribery charges. And uh, that could lead to Netanyahu being defeated. Uh, there's former chiefs of staff on the sidelines who could decide to enter the political fray. Uh, that could make a very big difference in an election. So I can understand Netanyahu being cautious about when he would initiate an election. Uh, there was a poll that was on Channel 2 News in Israel on Monday that found that if the election would take place now, uh, the Likud would win pretty much the same amount of seats. Israel also just completed the latest round of municipal elections. So all of the cities and municipalities from the largest city in the country, Jerusalem, all the way down to the smallest, voted on their local elected leaders. It's very easy because of the coincidence in timing to make the analogy to the U.S. midterms. And we here in the U.S., you know, there are all kinds of think pieces about what we learned about our national parties, about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and what we might anticipate from those parties in the next federal election in 2020, um, what we learned about them from the midterms. Did we learn anything about the national parties in Israel from the municipal elections that just took place? So unlike elections in the United States that are seen as a bellwether for the support of the president of the United States two years into his term, in Israel, because you don't have Likud and the labor and and national parties running so much, um, it's much less of a bellwether on Netanyahu and how he's doing. There were party leaders, uh, mayoral candidates who he supported who did well. There were mayoral candidates who he supported who did not well, and particularly in Jerusalem where he ran his Jerusalem affairs minister, Zev Elgin, who finished third out of uh, five candidates. Um, What we did see is as a national trend coming from this election is a couple things. Number one is that more and more women were elected. Uh, I believe it's 14 by the latest count, uh, which is still a very, very long way to go because there are more than 200 uh, different uh, local parties that have a mayor. Um, But it's a lot better than four, which it was a few years ago. Um, The other trend is the ultra-Orthodox are more divided than ever which could result in them having not more power, as you'd expect with demographic reasons, with the ultra-Orthodox obviously continuing to have more kids, but less power ahead uh, after the next election. 
Uh, and if the ultra-Orthodox have less power, they might not be in the government. Maybe they'd be split, some of them in the government and some not. And that could facilitate religious pluralism being able to move forward in a way that hasn't been possible in a long time in Israel. Which would certainly be a great step forward. I'll just note, since you mentioned that there were more women elected mayors than ever before, that because of a man named Jackie Levy, who is uh, was, I should say, a Likud member of Knesset, being elected the mayor of, uh, I think it was Beit She'an, and a, a woman being the next person on the Likud list to step into the Knesset, there are now 36 women in Israel's 120-member parliament, which is the largest uh, number that there have ever been in the Knesset, um, and actually a higher percentage of women serving the Knesset than will serve in this incoming U.S. Congress, which is also the highest percentage. And that's with, by the way, that's with several parties, a couple of ultra-Orthodox parties and uh, and one Islamist party in the Knesset uh, that don't have any women on the list. So I, I think that that's an interesting kind of remarkable outcome uh, of the municipal elections at the national level. It sure is. It's 30% for the Knesset is what it'll be on Sunday when Jackie Levy's resignation that he sent this morning to the Knesset speaker uh, will take effect. Now, it is possible that uh, she would decline to enter the Knesset because if she enters the Knesset, she might not be able to run for a slot reserved on the Likud list for someone who has never been a member of Knesset. Uh, but, I mean, this is a recent development that she might turn it down. Uh, the next person on the Likud list after her is also a woman, uh, but she might also turn it down. So uh, we have to wait and see on that. Fascinating. So whether it's Osnat Mark or another woman, hopefully we will, in fact, see that number come up to uh, to 36 and only climb higher in the years to come. Um, let's turn to Jerusalem specifically, because that was a mayoral election that attracted a lot of attention all across Israel and among many American Jews um, as well. What are your takeaways from the Jerusalem mayoral election? Okay, so the new mayor of Jerusalem is named Moshe Leon. He spells it L-I-O-N. <laughs> So uh, we have a lion as mayor of Jerusalem, which is quite fitting, with the lion being the symbol of the city. Uh, but the man who stands behind him is Aryeh Derry, the leader of the Shas party, Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party, whose name, Aryeh, means lion. And uh, so as I wrote on the cover of today's uh, Jerusalem poster, I guess yesterday's, um, he is really the lion who gets to roar. Um, and it'll be up to Moshe Leon to prove his independence. Uh, that he's not beholden to the ultra-Orthodox. And the real test of that is there, there's a place in Jerusalem called First Station, which is a cultural area where the train used to be. And uh, it's right now open on Shabbat and very lively on Shabbat with both people that uh, keep Shabbat and people who don't. Um, if he closes that area, then uh, that's a sign we, we've got some trouble ahead in Jerusalem. During the campaign, he was asked about it, and he said, I built that place uh, when I was the head of the Jerusalem Development Authority. I'm not going to close it, but, but that was before he realized that he would get no seats from his own party in the city council, and it really all depended on the ultra-Orthodox electing him. And there's another city in Jerusalem, albeit a, a much smaller one, uh, one much less known uh, outside of the country, that had a, an interesting showdown between, um, or, or was kind of billed as a showdown between ultra-Orthodox reactionaryism and perhaps a glimmer of, of progress. And uh, that city is, uh, is Beit Shemesh. Uh, can you tell us about the mayoral election there? 
I'm telling you, Steffi, I told my editors for months that the most interesting election was in Beit Shemesh, and they <laughs> laughed at me. And uh, the other media outlets around Israel didn't take it seriously at all. They didn't go there. And I wrote about Beit Shemesh over and over and over again. My, my photographer at the Jerusalem Post said, you know, why are you making me go here? And I, I turned out totally vindicated that <laughs> an ultra-Orthodox mayor got defeated in what's gradually becoming an ultra-Orthodox city by a woman, by a revolutionary woman, by a very impressive woman. Um, and th- this is very good news, particularly for the Anglos, the American immigrants who moved to Beit Shemesh uh, over the last uh, 10, 15 years who were encouraged to move there and who had been suffering under this ultra-Orthodox mayor. When I interviewed her, she spoke to me for more than an hour just on the topic of how to help these immigrants from English-speaking countries. Uh, I wish Moshe Leon, my mayor in Jerusalem, could speak for a minute on that topic. And she spoke for more than an hour. So uh, they're very lucky. Yes, I know a lot of people who care about religious pluralism were, were very excited to see Elisa Bloch win that election and certainly to see what comes of it in the, in the years to come. Are there other municipal elections that you think were particularly significant or that you know, deserve special attention? A couple of them, uh, Iranana, which is a city that has a lot of English speakers also, uh, about a half an hour outside Tel Aviv, had a gay mayor. Um, who had been uh, appointed after the previous mayor left, and he did not succeed in getting elected, not because he was gay and not uh, the other way around. It had nothing, the election had nothing to do with, with his sexual orientation, but it was cool that we had a gay mayor of a, a relatively large Israeli city for a while, and so now uh, he lost. Um, the other city of significance to our readers are in the United States uh, was a place called Bat Yam, uh, just to the south of Tel Aviv, where the man who got elected mayor uh, served as the strategist for the Trump campaign in Israel that there was ahead of the last election where they tried to get Israelis who have American citizenship to vote in the American election. Fascinating. There's so much going on in Israel that's on your beat, Gil, you know, from uh, from the national politics to the local. You know, it, it must be really hard for you to be away during this particularly heightened time. You're you're here in the States on a speaking tour. Do you feel like you're you know, you're missing out on the action? Absolutely. I'm speaking to you here in Detroit Airport. I'm about to board a plane uh, to Baltimore, and then I'm going to be speaking tonight in Pittsburgh. Uh, I've got a full slate so far, but I actually do have some time available on this trip because on Sunday night coming up, I had a cancellation in Philadelphia because they moved the start of the Eagles game. (laughs) So I'm actually available to speak uh, this Sunday night, pretty much anywhere on the East Coast, ideally uh, Phil, uh, either Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York, um, or uh, Florida, where I'm going to be speaking Sunday morning. I also have some time uh, Monday lunchtime uh, around there, uh, and um, you know, not too close to Thanksgiving, but uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, uh, I have some time when I could speak. So I'm available at gil at jpost.com, G-I-L at jpost.com, if you know anyone who could use a last-minute briefing on all the excitement taking place in the corridors of power in Israel. And of course, since we're speaking now at 9 a.m. on Thursday, by next week, everything in the entire country will have changed and you'll have an entirely new briefing to offer. Gil, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure being with you, Steffi. Thank you. 
Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Firefighters. Good for the Jews? Our thoughts are with the people of California today as two enormously destructive wildfires ravage the state. Many Jewish communities are affected, including Temple Adat Elohim in Thousand Oaks. At three in the morning this past Friday, a neighbor woke Rabbi Barry Diamond to let him know that the state had issued an evacuation order for their area. The rabbi quickly headed for his synagogue, which was ringed by fire. Heroically, he went into the building twice, first saving a Torah scroll that had survived the Holocaust and one that had been dedicated just months earlier, and then bringing out their two other Torah scrolls and their scroll of the Book of Esther. He and his family then evacuated. All across California, the fire has killed people and destroyed property. Thank God for the brave firefighters and heroic neighbors who have done their best to save people, animals, and precious, priceless heirlooms. They are heroes of their communities, and they certainly are good for the Jews. We're off next week for Thanksgiving, but we're looking forward to being back the week after that with even more great content from AJC. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.